Hey guys, uh, great to see you. Glad you are here tonight. Hey, I want to start off uh, asking you a question. Have you ever thought about what you want on your headstone someday? Let me ask you a different way. At the end of your life, how do you want to be remembered? A lot of you know that I, I spent this past summer in Japan um, with our team that went over to serve uh, a church and, and do some college ministry stuff. And one of the girls that was on our team, she told me this story one day, one of the, her experiences. Um, on her way back one day from the church that, that we were serving in, uh, she stopped kind of in between where we lived in this church. There was this shrine, and it's kind of off the beaten path. And so she kind of stumbled upon it, and she's walking around looking at it. You know, it's really pretty. And attached to the shrine, there's, there's a cemetery. And so she starts walking around the cemetery, and she starts looking at the headstones. And she, she notices that a lot of the headstones look a lot like, you know, headstones you would find in a cemetery here. You know, just a name, uh, maybe a birth date, um, you know, the year that the person died, uh, that sort of thing. Pretty normal. But, you know, as she was walking around looking more, she started to notice that some of the headstones, actually quite a few of them, had these little side headstones. Uh, that was kind of attached to the main headstone, but, but it was different because it was smaller and it was kind of on the side. Um, but on these side headstones were, were a lot of times images, you know, pictures, people, um, family. Uh, sometimes there were like houses or, or vehicles or some of them had even company logos, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I'll be honest. I don't have any idea what these side headstones were actually for. Uh, I asked and I, I never got a great answer. Um, but I can't help but think that it seems like that these side headstones, the things that were on these side headstones, represented things that these people wanted to be remembered for. You know, cars, people, company logos, whatever. That's what it seems like gave these people a name to be proud of. You see, the things on these headstones seem like the things that made these people's lives worth living for. It's what made their life great. But what about us? What makes you and your life great? Is it your sorority letters? Or how about your friend group? Or maybe it's your athleticism or intellect. Maybe your appearance. Or what about campus involvement? Maybe it's the country that you live in or, or the country that you're from. Maybe you think you're great because you know a lot about the Bible. Or maybe you're great because you're a really good moral person. You see, whatever it is, we're all in some form or another trying to make a great name for ourselves. We want to be like Ron Burgundy. We're kind of a big deal. At least we think we are. You see, we have a lot in common with the early people of the Bible because over 3,000 years ago, they too were trying to do the very thing that I'm talking about right now. They were trying to make a name for themselves. Rather than living in the world as God created them to live, filling this world with people, building culture, reflecting God's mercy and goodness and love, well, they were set on, on building their own little kingdom, making their own name great. 
If you hear last week at Veritas, you heard Dave teach on Noah and the flood. And, and he helped us to see that, that God was gracious in his promise to renew his commitment to creation after the flood. You see, despite humanity's sin, God doesn't give up on them. Human beings are sent out again, just as in the very first chapter of the Bible. They're sent out to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But we come to chapter 11 of Genesis, and there's yet another problem. Humanity is again rebelling against God. Look at Genesis 11, 1 through 4 with me. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So God has given humanity this this star role in the story that he's writing in the world that he's created. And that role is to play a significant part in building God's kingdom. But the people don't want it. Instead, their focus is on themselves. And so they start pooling their resources. They start building a city with a tower high in the sky, uh, undoubtedly a symbol of their autonomy, their self-dependence, their arrogance. Once again, we see human beings who were created in the image of God, who are given the task of representing God in the world, instead rejecting God in favor of making a name for themselves. And so what does God do? How does he respond to their rebellion? Well, he comes down and he sees what they've done and he scatters them throughout the land and he gives them different languages so that they can't understand each other. And fittingly, he names the city they were building Babel. See, God punishes their intentional disobedience. And as we see Babel, it stands in stark contrast to the beginning of the creation story. You see, Babel shows us just how wrong humanity had become at this point. You see, that's the bleak context of our passage leading up to our passage tonight. Every aspect of life is tragically affected by sin and rebellion against God. Human relationships with God are broken. Human relationships with each other are broken. Human relationships with creation are broken. Nothing is as God originally intended it to be. But God has a plan. And He's on a mission to save the world because He is a God who keeps His promise. And that mission, His great rescue plan, well, begins with a 75-year-old pagan named Abram. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's solution to human rebellion at Babel is to work through two elderly people, Abram and his wife Sarai. And we learn earlier in the story, she's not even able to have kids. But this is the plan. And what does he say? What does God say to Abram? He says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You notice, notice the repetition here. 
Remember Dave told us last week that when ancient writers wanted to highlight or underline or bold something, they would, they would use repetition to do so. And so when Abram goes as God's command, as God commands, God promises to bless him, to make him into this great nation, to make his name great. Well, having a great name is exactly what the builders of Babel aspired to, right? You see, but their human attempts at ascertaining this greatness, they fail miserably. But this time it's different. This time, Abram's great name doesn't come from his own abilities. It doesn't come from his own efforts. No, Abram doesn't deserve it. God simply chooses Abram. God chooses to save Abram based on nothing, nothing that he did. But what if, what if this verse just ends after Abram's blessing? What if Genesis 12, 2 read like this? And I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. What if it just ended right there? Well, cool, right? What, is, what does that really have to do with us? I mean, if God is just telling us that he saved this guy named Abram for nothing more than himself, well, who cares? There's nothing particularly relevant to our lives at all if all we read is that God made some guy great several thousand years ago. But that's precisely why this verse doesn't stop there. God doesn't stop with Abram because if he did, his mission wouldn't go forward as he wanted it to. Remember, God is on a mission to save the world and his people. And so what does he say the point of choosing Abram, saving Abram is? Well, read the whole verse. And I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that, so that you will be a blessing. You see, that so that phrase is huge in this verse. God chooses Abram. God saves Abram so that he will be a blessing to others. You see, God blesses Abram so that he'll be a blessing. That word blessing, it sounds pretty churchy, right? I mean, I, I kind of an, I imagine a, a nice old lady somewhere saying something like, oh, bless you, bless your little heart. But that's not really the biblical idea of blessing. You see, when the Bible talks about blessing, it's talking about the good life. The word blessing is a word full of abundant life. And so when God promises to bless us, it means he intends to, to give us all that we need. And so our role in blessing others is to participate alongside God in making life better for people because God is a God who cares about people. And so if we walk away tonight thinking the point of this talk is that, that God just saved a guy named Abram and made him great, well, we've completely missed the point. See, if you don't hear anything else tonight, if you haven't been paying attention or you're not going to pay any more attention, just listen to this. See, the point is that God saves his people for a purpose, for a mission. And that mission, that purpose is to be a blessing to the world. Let me say something to you that, that might be a little bit shocking. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, God didn't just choose you. God didn't just save you simply to rescue you from hell. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. God most certainly rescues us from hell and the consequences of sin. That's hugely important. But it's not the whole story. 
You see, the good news of the gospel isn't just that we're sinners and God saves us from the punishment we deserve in Jesus, though that's profoundly important, profoundly necessary. We cannot lose sight of that beautiful reality. But it's more than that. It's that God has a cosmic rescue plan to redeem the entire world. And so that's why verse 2 doesn't stop with Abram just becoming a great name. God chose Abram to be a blessing to others precisely because God always saves his people for a purpose, for a mission. Maybe we're used to thinking about God choosing people solely in terms of who's saved and who isn't, who's in and who's out. But I think what we see in these verses is that it's more than that. God doesn't just choose Abram so he and his family alone are saved. No, God saves and blesses Abram so that he would be an agent of blessing to others. God isn't just here to save individuals. If he was, the focus would be on us. I'm great. I'm saved. I'm in. I've been blessed. It's Babel all over again. We start thinking of terms in terms of me and my greatness. But God doesn't save individuals for the sake of themselves and their greatness. No, he saves individuals for a purpose. Uh, Author, scholar, Chris Wright, he kind of talks about this idea of God saving individuals for a purpose. He he says, "Imagine, imagine a cave. Right? And a group of people trapped in this cave. For whatever reason, they're trapped in a cave. But there's this narrow passageway that, that for whatever reason, one person can get through. So this group of people trapped in this cave, they get together and they, they choose one person that's going to get through that passage, going to shimmy through that passage. And when that person gets out, they're not just going to go away. No, they're going to go and they're going to get resources. And they're going to bring people and they're going to come back and rescue who's left in that cave. You see, that group of people had to choose someone to go so that they could come back and save others. See, that person that was chosen by that group has a purpose. God saves his individuals for a purpose. He saves his people so that they can play a crucial role in the story that he's writing. And so when we see the role that Abram plays, the role that God has saved him for, what happens? Blessing comes to every nation on earth. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, what would it look like if Veritas, if we were a community of people that looked like that? A community of people committed to advancing God's mission to bless the world right here on Mizzou's campus. Well, I can think of a lot of things that it would mean, but, you know, a few. I think it means that our relationships with people that they would be genuine and caring, that there would be something about how we interact with each other, not just the people in this room, but the people outside these walls that is attractive. We care intentionally for each other. We're genuine. Our relationships would look different. I think it changes our work. Maybe our role as students. You know, I think it makes us thoughtful. Let's be thoughtful students. Let's do our work with excellence. Let's use the resources and the gifts that God has given us for a bigger purpose. I think it it shapes our worship. 
you know, how we talk to God, how we talk about God, how we worship God, I think it's, it becomes real and attractive. Not mechanical, not we're just here to go through the motions, not stuffy. Oh, there's something about it that people see it and they say, I want that. I want that God. I think it changes our service. See, rather than than doing service-related things so that our resumes look really great, we start to realize that serving others is a means by which we can bless them. And so our service becomes sacrificial, not selfish. Or what about our care for the world? This place that God has created. I think it makes us care sincerely for this place. We care sincerely about making God's world, participating with Him, making this a better place. And I think it shapes the message, the story that we're living. It's a story filled of hope. Hope that's not fleeting. It's lasting. Okay, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. God's grand mission to make our name great so that His name is great. To be a blessing to the world so that blessing comes to the world. It doesn't happen if Abram doesn't go. You see, Abram has to go. Look, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You see, maybe we think that that would be really easy. But Abram doesn't exactly come from a Bible-believing home. No, his dad and ancestors, they worshipped all sorts of gods. You see, the sun god was probably one of the, the chief of these gods. Abram didn't have a Bible. He didn't go to church. He just had God telling him what to do. And now he had a really big decision to make. Think about the things that God was asking Abram to leave. His country, his family, his father's house. The very things that gave Abram a sense of identity and security. See, Abram's call from God wasn't some metaphorical call. No, these were real people. Important people. People that Abram must have loved because after all, they were his family. But it wasn't just people that God was calling Abram to leave. He was calling him to leave a very specific place, his home. In ancient Mesopotamia, families lived together in clans and in something kind of like compounds. And so when God is calling Abram to leave his father's house, he's talking about a specific address, a place where Abram and his family and his extended family lived, a place that provided shelter and safety, stability and identity. It was his home. And now God was asking him to leave it for something completely unknown. Have you ever had to go somewhere or into a situation that felt completely unknown? I mean, I know I have. As I was thinking about that question, uh, kind of on the lighter, more humorous side of things, one, one example popped into my mind. Uh, it was January of 2004. I'd just come off of my first semester in college, and more specifically, I was towards the end of my Christmas break, a much-needed Christmas break, and, and I was about to enter into a week of something that I was completely terrified about. 
A week of something I had no idea what it would be like. And I remember the two-hour drive from Kansas City where I lived to Columbia where I was going to school and more specifically to that fraternity house that I was about to walk into for something called Initiation Week, which isn't exactly fun. I remember being terrified. I remember I was with my four of my pledge brothers, four of my friends, and I think that entire two-hour ride, we didn't talk to each other because we weren't about to walk into a situation that was exactly enjoyable. We weren't walking into a situation where we were getting a bunch of presents and high fives. No, it was going to be tough. And I can spare details, but, but I was anxious and I was terrified because I was walking into something that was completely unknown. You see, this God that Abram had never heard of asked him to leave everything that had been important up to that point in his life. And for what? To go to a place utterly foreign to Abram. A place he had never heard of because of a God he didn't know anything about as far as we know. Think about that. I mean, can you imagine the difficulty of a decision like that? And yet Abram went. He did it. Genesis 12, 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. God called Abram to go. Where is God calling you to go? Where is he calling you to leave behind some of your comforts? For some of you, maybe that means serving overseas in places like Japan and Jamaica as a missionary. Maybe that's what it means. But maybe for most of you, going means something like actually staying in areas that you're probably already in and around all the time. Not for our own mission, not for our own name, but to make God's name great. You see, if we want to be about God and God's mission, then we, like Abram, are sometimes going to have to leave behind comforts. We're going to have to sometimes leave behind the values of the world. Sometimes we're going to lose out on what others perceive as fun. Sometimes we'll be forced to lose out on certain relationships. We won't get the highest grades because we're unwilling to cheat on our homework and exams like some of our classmates. We won't have the newest music because we can't afford it and we don't want to illegally download it. We'll lose sleep because we are across town, across campus, yet again picking up our drunk friend. So I think sometimes going actually means paying attention to those that nobody else does. It means building people up rather than gossiping about them. Maybe going means staying in the dorms or your fraternity or sorority for ministry, even when moving off campus would be easier. Maybe it means giving up some of your free time to serve some sort of ministry. Where is God calling you to go? Wherever it is, the point of our going is not to make our name great. No, the point is to make God's name great. As the music team comes up, I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in, in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, God saves Abram and promises to make him into a great nation, the nation of Israel. And through the choice of that one nation, God says all the nations of the earth would receive God's blessing. How does that happen? We know that one nation that God chose, Israel, that that one nation would come to be represented by one man, Jesus Christ. And though a man, Jesus was also God. And through Jesus' death and through his resurrection, all of God's blessings would be available to all of his people. Jesus is the seed that God preserved for thousands of years, the one through whom all people would be blessed because that's God's mission. And because it's God's mission, it must be our mission. But not just your mission, not just my mission, our mission, our purpose, to be a blessing to the world, to make God's name great. You see, we don't have to make that fateful mistake that the people of Babel made. We don't have to find or create our own means of blessing. That blessing is ours in Jesus. And so now God is calling us to lay down our attempts to make our own name great. See, they didn't work for the people of Babel and they won't work for us. But God promises to make our name great so that we're agents of the blessing that we have in Jesus. A community of hope and joy in a broken world. A community of people participating with God to make known His name, to reflect His mercy, His goodness, His love. To make His blessings flow as far as the curse of sin is found. So how do we want to be remembered at the end of our lives? Is it by the things that that we're putting on our side headstones? No. How about as people who lived out God's mission to be a blessing to the world? That's a life worth being remembered for. Amen.